Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Steve. I'm an alcoholic. I'm Steve. You know AA is starting to work when you don't even realize a woman's trying to get you to hang out with her anymore. <laughs> I tried to hang out with women a lot of times when I ought not been doing that. And uh, 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 so uh, you guys report back to my wife that my behavior's intact. <laughs> You know, I'm thrilled to be here this evening. I really appreciate the opportunity to spend the weekend uh, uh, with all of you here. Uh, uh, I appreciate Rob for the invitation and the committee. I appreciate Tamika for taking care of me. Uh, uh, it is a privilege any time that I get a chance to share a little bit about how Alcoholics Anonymous is working in my life. And I'm not sure everything that will get said here in the next uh, hour or so. i got a handful of stories I typically tell, and then other stuff sort of falls into cracks. Uh, uh, so let me tell you up front, if nothing else comes through or makes sense, that, uh, uh, that I love Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm grateful for the sobriety and the recovery that I have today. And, uh, uh, and I don't take it for granted for a minute. Uh, so it's a treat for me to be here. My sobriety dates June 30th, 1989, and my home group is the backroom group of Alcoholics Anonymous that meets every Saturday and Sunday morning in Nashville, Tennessee at 5925 O'Brien Street. And it's a, uh, it's a great home group. Uh, I love that group, and I'll tell you what, we have a great meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, the meetings we have are terrific meetings, but I think what makes it a great home group are the things that happen between meetings with that group and the outreach and the work with the correctional facilities and with treatment centers and just the fellowshipping one with another and the activity and enthusiasm for recovery that the group has. So I'm a grateful member of that group and, uh, uh, and appreciate them. Uh, you know, Tamika asked me as we were, were sitting there chatting a little bit when she finally caught me and got me to be still for a few minutes. Uh, 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 she says, are you nervous? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm really not. And, and, uh, but that doesn't come from self-confidence. I want you to understand that, that uh, it was a number of years ago. I was living in Richmond, Virginia, and, and three or four years sober, and I had uh, talked at a, at a group and I just kind of fumbled and bumbled my way all the way through the talk and, and was very self-conscious. And, and I got home and I called my sponsor, Joe, uh, and I said, Joe, I just don't think I did a very good job tonight. And he said, well, Steve, you're, you're starting from a false premise. He says, because that implies there's a night you think you did do a good job. And, uh, <laughs> uh, he says, but the fact of the matter is, he says, see, it's not up to you to do a good job or a bad job. And it's certainly not up to you to try to determine which was which. He says, your privilege and your opportunity is to show up and do what you were invited to do to the best of your ability on that given night. So uh, that's what I'm going to try to do, and that's what you guys will get this evening, the best I got tonight. I don't promise that it will have any particular uh, depth or weight. I will say this, if, it, if, the, if the message that I share is the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, it cannot help but have depth and weight. But it's the message, not the messenger, that brings that. Uh, it was not long after that little talk at that group that I had now been invited uh, to speak to what was the, the big Sunday morning speaker meeting in Richmond. And there were a couple of hundred people at that meeting, and I was nervous that morning. And uh, I, I talked to Joe as, as you know, before going up, and I said, Joe, I, I am nervous this morning. And I said, this is the largest group I've ever spoken before. And he said, Steve, don't worry, pal. He said, by the time you're done, it'll be down to the size you're used to. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and that could happen here. Uh, uh, 
So anyway, but I hope we have a good time for the next little while, and uh, and I hope we have a few laughs. And uh, my friend Scott says that laughter is the sound effect of recovery. And uh, but I, I hope that I never, I, I hope that I don't ever laugh through or over the message that Alcoholics Anonymous has, because we will laugh at some things this evening that were not funny when they were happening. And I want to make that clear a few times during the talk, and I wouldn't want people to think that I took lightly some of the things that were happening that I can look back at today from this vantage point uh, uh, with the perspective that I have today and, and recognize the absurdity of life as I was living it at the time, the alcoholic thinking and the drunken behavior. And uh, uh, so let's let's start through this. I'll tell you right away, I'm going to try to do what I was invited to do, which was share, you know, what I was like and what happened to me that got me to AA and a little bit what I'm like today through my time in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, uh, but I don't promise to do that in any particular order. You know, I mean, my story is kind of like a Quentin Tarantino movie, you know, that there's just no time and space continuum. And... Uh, uh, because uh, if I think of something to say, I just need to say it right then or it'll, it'll be gone. And so I'll probably tell a host of seemingly unrelated stories and anecdotes that I hope come together by the end of the hour in uh, some meaningful way. Uh, but I do want to start, I'll tell you that I told you my sobriety date's June 30th, 1989. Uh, 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 the last drink that I took was June the 29th of 1989. And I asked my sponsor, Frank, in Nashville, after I've been sober for a few months, uh, I said, Frank, I'm a little uh, confused about this sobriety date. You know, is it the first day I didn't have a drink or the last day I did have one? And, and he said, Steve, he says, I am just much more concerned about you not taking the next drink than when you had the last one. And he said, so just pick one you like and go with it. And, and I've gone with the 30th. Uh, and that means I'm going to tell you about June the 29th, you know. And, and, you know, one of the key components of Alcoholics Anonymous is the identification one alcoholic with another. It's really that singleness. That's the thing that brings us together. Yet I'm afraid that this might be where I lose you. Because I'm going to tell you about my last drink, and it was an amaretto on the rocks. And uh, uh, that's just terribly embarrassing to me. It's... Uh, uh, I wish I had a different story to tell. Uh, but the other thing, see, that I promise you is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be uh, uh, honest with you tonight. I'm going to be honest, but I don't have the same commitment to accuracy. Because sometimes I'm honestly mistaken. So I can only tell you my story from my point of view as I went through it, but I'm quite certain that there are others that were viewing my life that might have different stories to tell. And it might have viewed instance in that life a little differently than I did. So what I'm telling you, sometimes I'm going to be telling you what happened. And sometimes I'm going to be telling you what it felt like. And sometimes I can't tell the difference. But you're going to see, this is like one of those POV movies. You've seen it from my point of view. And uh, uh, I, I had that drink, that amaretto on the rocks, on, on June the 29th, because I was scheduled into a treatment facility on July the 1st of 1989. And I say scheduled because that was absolutely uh, uh, the way it was set up. I'd been picking out a treatment center for about six or eight months. I'd been collecting brochures. I'd been making on-site visits. Uh, uh, I'd been going like a lot of people pick a college. And uh, uh, 
the reason was that in uh, in March of 1988, uh, I had left a, a, a little restaurant slash bar in Brentwood, Tennessee. It was a restaurant when I went in about 6:30 in the evening, and it turned into a bar about 8:30. And then when I left there about 11, uh, about midnight uh, uh, to 12:30, went the wrong way down the street, drove my car into a Brentwood police officer's car, came to the next morning in uh, Williamson County Jail. Uh, that afternoon, I was in a lawyer's office uh, 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 and, and tried to figure out now how to address this new problem in my life. In fact, I had found my Williamson County lawyer at the direction of my Davidson County lawyer because <laughs> I was having a DUI tried in Davidson County during this same period. And uh, uh, as a result of, of uh, going through uh, uh, and two or three continuances, and finally going in and, and working out a plea bargain that turned out to be the conviction for my sixth DUI. They gave me an option of, of 60 days in jail or 10 weekends in jail and uh, go to drug and alcohol rehabilitation during the year of my probation. And I'll be honest with you, uh, one of those did not seem any more or less appealing than the other to me. Uh, I didn't know much about either. I, I had I had done you know I had I had spent time in jail you know that overnight stuff. I'd, I'd, I'd been arrested for these DUIs and other you know drunken uh, episodes before, but most of my time in jail I was asleep or passed out anyway. And and uh, 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 but but now this 60 days in a row sounded like a bad plan. I'm not a tough guy. You know you just you already heard the Amaretta story. That's about as bad as it gets. Uh, 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 I'm just the poster boy for middle-class alcoholism. Uh, but i tell you what I discovered about my alcoholism. You know, because I wasn't at AA very long before I started telling lies about my dream, you know, because all of a sudden I needed some AA street cred right away, you know. Uh, uh, I was listening to y'all, and I said, man, you know, I don't believe I'll tell that Amaretta story here. And, uh, uh, But see, our book, In Working With Others, gives me a direction that I didn't see for quite a while. And it says we tell the new man exactly what happened to us. And what that means to me is that, uh, uh, is that the primary thing of value that I bring to Alcoholics Anonymous is the truth about me. The primary thing of value I bring is my story. And it may or may not resonate with everyone, but it absolutely will resonate with someone. And the different speakers here this weekend will have a variety of different stories and a variety of different circumstances around their life experience and their drinking experience. What I've discovered is alcoholism tends to look different on different people. And that alcohol even affects different people differently. You know what I mean? I mean, some of us drink and dance and, you know, some of us drink and fight. Some of us drink and sing karaoke that never should. And, uh, 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 some of us drink and, uh, and pull the curtains and unplug the phone. Some of us drink and don't show up. Some of us drink and break every vow that we've made and, and betray every trust that's been given us. Uh, some of us drink and do that thing again we said we would never do again. And then we do it again. And then we do it again. And every time we meant when we said we wouldn't do it. See, a long time before I decided I thought I might need to stop drinking, Many, many times I made the, the, the promise to myself and to others that I'll never let that happen again. What I was trying to do was find a way to avoid some of these consequences of my drinking. 
But at any rate, when I wandered into that uh, uh, lawyer's office that afternoon, see, I'd called my wife from jail that morning, and I've called Connie from jail a few times, but that morning she suggested I call somebody else. <laughs> and uh, uh, and I did, and and, uh, uh, and that guy came by and got me, and, and uh, uh, I went to my car that had been impounded, and that's the first that I knew that my car had been wrecked. Uh, 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 I'm, I'm a blackout drinker, and, and uh, uh, or as I heard a comedian say, I love this uh, analogy. This comedian said said that he was a blackout drinker, or as he liked to call it, time travel. And uh, uh, and I, that makes sense to me because I can't. How many times did I come to and go, whoa, you know, how did I get here in the future? And uh, 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 and what happened? And. Uh, uh, but we went to get the car, and it was wrecked, and that's the first I, I knew that it was wrecked. I, I just had a fuzzy recollection of some of the things of that evening. And uh, uh, by 1 o'clock that afternoon, I was in a lawyer's office, and that lawyer asked me a question I don't remember being asked before. Uh, he said, Steve, do you think you've got a problem with alcohol? He was looking at the arrest report, and he was looking at, uh, 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 at the accident report. And I said, you know what, pal, what I think I got is a legal problem, and I wish you would focus all your time and attention on this legally. You know, let's spring me out of here and, and get, give me the sermon later, but uh, 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 let's get me out of this jam. And, boy, don't we know something about trying to get out of the jam. So he went to work, and uh, and now... About three months later, here we were coming out of that Williamson County Jail, and uh, and I had opted for the 10 weekends in jail and drug and alcohol rehabilitation, and I'd done it primarily as a math question, because even my rudimentary math skills revealed that 10 weekends and, and 28 days in treatment was 48 days versus 60 days in jail, so by virtue of the 12-day difference, I chose treatment. And had the math been the other way around, I truly believe I might have chosen the jail because I just wanted to do less time wherever I was doing it. But I didn't have a clue what was going to be going on. So my wife and I went out with three other couples on June the 29th, uh, came home. I had that amaret on the rocks. I smoked a joint, and I went to bed. I got up on June the 30th, and my wife and I took uh, – uh, our daughter, who was then five years old, our daughter Abby, to Chuck E. Cheese before Daddy was going away on this 28-day business trip. And uh, uh, I just stopped and make a little public service announcement here. If, if anybody has not stopped drinking yet, do not spend your first day sober at Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, uh, I know I said I didn't have a very tough story, but it was a hellish day at Chuck E. Cheese. And... Uh, 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 You know, it's, it's, it is loud in there, and uh, uh, and they're just short and coming at you from every angle. And uh, uh, and just when I'm about to gather myself, uh, uh, a six-foot mouse walked out of the back. And uh, I pretended not to see the mouse, and uh, uh, and then finally I asked Connie, I, "Baby, do you see the mouse?" And, she said, you know, Steve, it's a man in a suit. We all see the man. <laughs> then Saturday morning, July the 1st, my friend Ricky came by to pick me up to take me off to this treatment facility. 
And as I said, I wasn't going because I had any intention of stopping drinking. I wasn't going because I felt I was an alcoholic. I hadn't had some epiphany that my life required or needed some moral uplift. Uh, I was just going to meet the obligations of my, the, the terms of my probation to Williamson County, Tennessee. And as Ricky's driving me over there, he said, Steve, what, what do you think this deal's going to be like, man? And I said, I don't have a clue, Rick. I don't know. I said, but I'll tell you one thing. I mean, I didn't know anything about, about drug and alcohol rehabilitation, as it was called, and, and as the papers uh, uh, referred to it as. It sounded painful to me. I, I, I knew it was something I didn't want to do. And uh, uh, I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous other than what I thought I knew based on watching some bad TV movies of the week or something. And I said, well, you know, but I'm not going to get in some little circle and go, I'm Steve, I'm an alcoholic, and whine about the biggest, you know, uh, secrets of my life. And so I said, about three weeks later, it's just at about week three, I just telling people way more than they wanted to know about me and, and, uh, and way more often than they wanted to hear it. And... Uh, But as we're driving over there, they, they, you know, Ricky dropped me off and I walked in. It was a Saturday morning. The, the, you know, primary staff was off for the weekend. They just had kind of the skeleton crew and they had the admitting nurse there. And she gave me a test. Now, I didn't know who all the players were then, but she gave me a test. And now it was, they referred to it as an assessment, uh, 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 but it just felt like my ACTs that morning. I mean, it's the hardest test I have ever taken. And some of you guys have taken it, or a version of it. In AA, we've got our own pamphlet with questions. Uh, uh, the questions to this particular test all began, there were 30 questions, and they all began with the phrase, have you ever? And they said, by the way, Steve, have you ever means even once, and even with a really good reason. And uh, said, uh, have you ever drank alone? Have you ever drank in the morning? Have you ever had a DUI? Have you ever had a blackout? Have you ever had a problem at work because of drinking? Have you ever had a problem at home because of drinking? Just 30 have you ever questions, which as you already know, just had check yes or check no to what are clearly essay questions. Uh, these answers beg for explanation. Because how do you answer that? And again, you know, we laugh here because we know. We know how hard that is. I can tell you that that morning I could not make myself check the box for fear of the conclusions that people were going to draw about me based on this answer without understanding the backstory, without understanding the explanation. You know, back in the book in uh, uh, the story Freedom from Bondage, uh, she talks about rationalization, and she refers to it as giving a socially acceptable explanation for socially unacceptable behavior. And frankly, that's what I was reaching for that morning. I look back, and I know that that's how I'd spent a great deal of my life, trying to explain myself to other people, trying to provide an appropriate explanation to inappropriate behavior. And ultimately, I began to realize that at some point, I was not only having to provide that explanation to the people around me, but I had to convince myself. I had to begin to give myself excuses for doing the things I was doing and becoming the person I was becoming. And it was getting harder and harder to do. And that morning, I had a need to do that. I wanted to ask, I had questions about the questions before answering. 
And you, you have you ever drank alone? I went, yeah, but they left. Uh, you know, I didn't start alone. Let me tell you what happened. We were all over there, and then, you know, boom. I need to give you the story. And then, have you ever drank in the morning? Oh, what do you mean morning? <laughs> really, right? Because 12.01 a.m. is technically the morning. And uh, uh, if I'm up a little late drinking, you think I'm a morning drinker. I'm afraid you're going to think I'm that guy that's got to reach over and grab the half pint off the nightstand to, you know, get his blood pumping in the morning. You might think I'm that kind of alcoholic. And I just couldn't make myself check the box. Well, here's what I've discovered. Again, I've, I've said that that... Alcoholism looks different on different people. Alcoholism is also, as most of us would, would agree, and our book indicates, is progressive. And so uh, I wasn't the guy that necessarily had to grab a bottle off that nightstand, but what I know and what the book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, and in fact what the men and women of AA shared with me very quickly, is how I answered those questions is not what makes me alcoholic. But those questions might reveal my alcoholism. They might expose it. They might shine a light on it. But you gave me a, a simple description that I could grab hold of that said that when you honestly want to, you find you can't stop entirely. Or from drinking, you have little control over the amount you take. You're probably alcoholic. And you just invited me to lay my life experience over both of those components and see if it fits. And, and I clearly fall in the camp of the alcoholic. But that day, I don't know all of this stuff. But I look back, too, and I'm going to make an analogy that, that sometimes gets me in trouble with the, with the women in the room, particularly the mothers. But uh, uh, alcoholism is a little bit like pregnancy. And uh, it is in the way that sometimes uh, you, you ladies who have, have born children know that you were pregnant a little while before you knew you were pregnant. Now, you knew you'd been doing something that could cause pregnancy, but you didn't know you were pregnant till the test came. And then some people just were unwilling to be pregnant. No, I, I, the powers of denial were so strong, I just will not be pregnant, but pretty soon we start to show. And the people around you knew you were pregnant no matter what you said. Or... You were pregnant. Once you became aware that you were pregnant, you decided that you wanted to wait a while before you told anybody else because you know something, you want to give it time to, for, for things to take their natural course. But then again, you begin to show, so it becomes evident. And so when I got to AA, you know, I was showing. You know, uh, 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 I was in my third trimester and uh, heavily dilated. Oh, no. But that morning, I'm just trying to figure out a way to answer these questions in such a way that won't have them drawn to wrong conclusions about me, a fear that somebody is going to call me alcoholic. And that's what it felt like was happening there. Now, I, you know, I am so grateful for the experience I had in treatment. I'm so grateful looking back that I ended up there. But it felt like at the time that I had been charged with the crime of alcoholism. And that they spent all day long trying to convince me or convict me of the charges. And they would do that by asking me questions about my drinking and my behavior and my drug use. In fact, they were trying to determine if I was an alcoholic and or drug addict in this facility. 
And it, like I said, so they, they, I, we're filling out things. They're asking questions. I say, Steve, don't you see? Don't you see? Don't you see? And about the second or third day there, and it felt like I'd been there a month already, but the second or third day there, two men from Alcoholics Anonymous came in. And, and, and by the way, I think the treatment center was doing exactly what they were supposed to do. I, I, treatment and, and AA were both very valuable to me, but they are, they are very different, and they, and they provided different services. And I don't confuse one with the other, but I, I still have great respect for, for the uh, for what happened for me as a result of going to that treatment facility. But now two men came in from Alcoholics Anonymous, and they did what I believe Alcoholics Anonymous suggest we do. They came in as ex-problem drinkers in whom the problem had been solved, properly armed with the facts about themselves. Now, I didn't, this is all looking back that I've got the perspective, but what I realized is that they didn't ask me anything about my drinking. They weren't trying to convince me of anything. They weren't on a membership drive for Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, 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 they weren't impassioned about my problem, but they shared very, very openly and earnestly and honestly about their alcoholism, about their experience in Alcoholics Anonymous, and about what their life was like today. And they gave me the opportunity, if, if I identified with the problem, if I was interested in the solution, they would do anything that, that they offered themselves as being willing to help. And that's really what AA is, I think, in its simplest form. And, uh, and, and you know, no huge thing happened that night in terms of it. It's not like I, I had a, a white light experience. It's not like intellectually anything dramatically changed for me. Uh, looking back, I know the feeling I had when they left was I just felt better for them having been there. I remember being comfortable during that hour because they had said up front, hey guys, we're not, sit back, relax. We're not going to ask anything of you. We're here to share about ourselves and we're here to protect our recovery and our sobriety and help you if you're interested. You know, one of those men has passed away and the other man uh, is still very active uh, uh, there in the, in the Williamson County area. And I call him every June 30th on my anniversary and thank him for coming by. And then I ask myself, am I a guy that's willing to be that guy for somebody else? Am I showing up for that next person? Or am I just home in my recliner enjoying my recovery, enjoying my sobriety? Uh, it's a challenge I have to look at regularly. But... Uh, 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 but I answered yes to about 10 of those 30 questions, and they said if you answered yes to four of them, you're probably, I think it was three, you're a problem drinker, four, you're alcoholic, five, you're chronic alcoholic, which I didn't know what that meant. It sounded like promotion from regular alcoholic. And, uh, 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 and truth is, I'd lied on some other questions, and I, you know, misunderstood a passel of the questions too, you know. The, uh, but I wasn't ready to be an alcoholic. I still didn't know really what alcoholism was, as Alcoholics Anonymous describes it. Uh, I'm going to back up a little bit now and, and, and tell you how I, how I ended up coming to that treatment facility. I, I was uh, uh, born and raised in Smyrna, Tennessee, just, just a little bit outside of Nashville. Uh, uh, Middle-class family, no particular reason for me to be alcoholic. I don't have anybody to blame. What I know now is that uh, I don't believe that good circumstances prevent alcoholism. I don't believe bad circumstances cause alcoholism. I do understand that challenging circumstances could cause somebody to seek relief in a bottle earlier than somebody else and perhaps with uh, more vigor, the need to find comfort. 
But uh, the thing that I know today when I'm trying to figure out is my, was my alcoholism different from that guy that's grabbing that half pint off the nightstand? Uh, 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 what I know today is what the book Alcoholics Anonymous says is that the single thing that sets us apart as a distinct entity is the phenomenon of craving, the allergy to alcohol. It's not how much, it's not how often, it's not when, it's not even what it did to us. Now, it's not even whether I danced or sang karaoke, robbed banks or, or did, a, you know, just none of that is the deal. Those, those are the consequences, those are the results of my alcoholism, but I believe the single thing that every alcoholic has in common who is an alcoholic, as Alcoholics Anonymous describes one, is the allergy to alcohol. Now, the second part of the first step, which talks about the unmanageability of my life, uh, I believe that's common to the alcoholic, but it doesn't seem to be exclusive to the alcoholic. Uh, there are over 200 and something 12-step programs that have unmanageability as part of, uh, as part of their first step. So, uh, 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 but that's what Alcoholics Anonymous seems to treat. I'm as allergic to alcohol today. The single thing that we all have in common is the single thing that Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't treat. The allergy. I've still got the physical allergy. But Alcoholics Anonymous has allowed me to get down to causes and conditions. You know, when it says that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol, I think the flip side of that on a guy like me is that I drank essentially because I didn't like the effect produced by sobriety. <laughs> I need something, something's missing. I need a little something. I'm uncomfortable. I don't, you know, we call it restless, irritable, discontent. There's just tons of subcategories under those three things that we can name a hundred different things. But, uh, uh, I was a good kid growing up there in Smyrna. I was, I was, uh, uh I was a compliant kid. Uh, I was the third of, of four kids. Uh, uh, mom and daddy were together. Nobody was knocking anybody around. Uh, 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 you know, I went where I said I was going to go. I was with who I said I was going to be with, and I came home when I said I was going to come home. I made a decision not to drink. I wasn't going to be a drinker. No big deal. There was alcohol in my house. My dad drank. My mom drank. But, but from my point of view, not to accept, not to excess. I didn't. It wasn't a, something that I noticed as being a problem in the home. And uh, uh, so I'd made a decision not to drink. I played sports and did stuff like that, and and, uh, and and it wasn't hard for me not to drink. And I was running with with the you know I was running with the kids that drank and did drugs, and and I was a very social animal and a fairly popular guy. So I wasn't one of those guys on the outside looking in. I was a guy on the inside that even then was fairly uncomfortable. I I, I, I was on the inside afraid of discovery. I was on the inside pretending to have it together, thinking you did have it together, hoping you wouldn't figure out I didn't have it together and how hard I was trying to look like I was okay. Now, what I figure is I think probably about 80% of the adolescent kids in that group probably felt a lot the same way. I don't know that, 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 I don't know how to, how I was different than the non-alcoholic before I was drinking. I, you know, I just have my experience. It's just hard for me to say that, that I had this and somebody else didn't. But I do know that uh, uh, when I was a freshman at Middle Tennessee State University, my dad had died unexpectedly uh, uh, and very quickly at 47 years old of a, uh, uh, of a massive stroke. And that's not why I drank, but, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't have to worry about what he would think about it at this point. And my mom was having to deal with his death in her own way, and so I was just kind of now 
even though I was 18, 19 years old, I was a very immature 18 or 19-year-old kid and, and had no supervision for about the first time. And two guys came by. We were going back to a basketball game, and I'm in the back seat of a 1968 uh, yellow Volkswagen Bug, and they handed back a bottle of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill wine. I heard a couple of groans on the Strawberry Hill. And, <laughs> you know, I know so far my two drinks are pretty impressive to you. But, uh, <laughs> I'm going to ratchet it up in a little while, okay? But, uh, uh, and they passed that ball back, and I took a drink, and it went around two or three, four times. I don't know. And, and, and the experience that I had, you know, and I probably had a beer before, and, I, and I'm sure my dad had given me a drink of this martini around the house and that stuff. I, I don't quite recall anything happening. But that night, all of a sudden, I couldn't wait to get where we were going, you know, because I thought they couldn't wait to see me when we got there. And uh, uh, I don't think I'd ever felt that, you know. I, I mean, all of a sudden, the back seat of that Volkswagen wouldn't hold me. And uh, I wanted to spring myself on an unsuspecting world. And we got there, and I stumbled out of that Volkswagen and, and, and had a great time, most of which I don't recall. But... Uh, 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 and I can't tell you whether I was alcoholic just before I took that drink or just after I took that drink or at what point I became alcoholic. Uh, I have no clue. I have an opinion, but I'm going to spare you that opinion. I have no clue because I don't know if I drank alcoholically from that moment on because I drank enthusiastically from that moment on. So, see, I don't know whether I could have controlled my – I don't know whether I could have stopped altogether or whether I could have controlled it. I made no effort to. In our book, they talk about the fact of that first 100. They say that while they have no way of proving it, they believe that many of them could have stopped drinking early in their drinking career. And I believe that they can't prove it because, like me, they never tried it. But the time they tried it, it was too late. So at what point did I cross the invisible line from heavy drinker to alcoholic? I don't know. I just know I was drinking when it happened. <laughs> I'm sure it happened long before I knew it. I had consequences from my drinking right out of the gate. I mean, I, I, I was never a, a, a sipper. I never didn't, I never tried not to get drunk when I was drinking. I wanted to get, I didn't always want to get too drunk. You know, I want to get just drunk enough. When the book says that the great obsession of every alcoholic is that one day will control and enjoy his drinking. You know, I, I don't, I don't think that means drink just enough not to know you've been drinking. You know, I wanted to drink and get drunk. I wanted to feel differently than before I drank. But never did I take a drink, hoping that if I do everything just right, you know, I'm going to have that first drink of the night, and if everything goes just right by around 1 or 1.30 this morning, I'll be handcuffed in the back of a police car after wrecking my car and getting a DUI and sitting in my own urine. This boy, that's going to be a party. Uh, that was never the plan, right? See, in the back of our book, in A Vision for You, it talks about what most normal folks get from a few drinks. It says, for most normal folks, drinking means conviviality, joyous intimacy with friends, release from care, boredom, and worry, a colorful imagination, and a feeling that life is good. i got to be honest with you, I got a little thirsty just saying that. Uh, 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 That's an attractive package. That's an attractive package for a guy like me. 
And that's what I hoped would happen, some form of that. But that part of the book in A Vision Few goes on to say, not so for those of us in the latter days of our drinking, maybe momentarily. Hey, Steve, maybe the party's on between around 7 and 10. You know, then comes oblivion and awakening to face the hideous four horsemen of terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. In 1980, I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was uh, at a TGI Fridays one afternoon. And so I've already told you it was the afternoon, so we've, we've, you already know that, I, that I'm starting a little earlier than I should. I'm throwing back kamikaze shooters and drink and, and uh, uh, taking two and alls. Uh, I get in my car, I leave, I get on the interstate, I-285, the perimeter of Atlanta, going the wrong way, going east in the westbound lane. I hit a car head-on, and two other cars hit us, and it totaled all four cars, and it sent some people to the hospital. And I came to in uh, Fulton County Jail the next morning. And I found myself there, uh, I'd urinated on myself, or, and I'd vomited on myself. Or I say, you know, I hope I did, because somebody did. And... Uh, 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 Some of you know that if you go down in the drunk tank, uh, uh, the stains you wake up with may or may not be of your own making. But uh, uh, at any rate, there I was, and, and all kidding aside, uh, never had I been uh, uh, more ashamed of what I had done. Once I gathered, once I asked a few questions, once they, they were the, the guards there were looking at me with disdain, uh, Never had I been more ashamed of what I had done and, and, and the harm I'd caused, and I did not yet know the extent of the injuries of the people that were, that were in the other accidents. Some were sent to the hospital, but, but as it turns out, the injuries weren't, uh, uh, weren't life-threatening, and, and I did get sued over that a couple of years later, uh, appropriately so. But, uh, uh, and never had I been more afraid of the consequences, legal, personal, professional, that awaited me. Never had I been more humiliated to sit there and moan urine and moan vomit uh, in, in the drunk tank. And never had I been more certain that I will never drink again. I meant it. And you know that, not, not the oath, this was the solemn oath, right? I meant it. And ten days later, I'm driving down the road smoking a joint, drinking a bottle of wine, thinking, well, I nearly overreacted to that. <laughs> So you can imagine, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and found in our literature on page 24 where it says there'll come a time that a guy like me won't have the power of choice over drink, that I won't be able to bring to consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, I'll be without defense against the drink. I can't tell you what that meant to me to come across that in that book. To discover that lack of power is my dilemma and to begin to understand what that really meant. That what that alcoholic insanity, the power of this disease to literally block off what I have discovered is that a head-on collision totaling four cars and sending me to jail will buy me ten days of sobriety. So far, that's as far as I've gotten on that fear, on that humiliation, and on that shame. What I've discovered is that the love of my wife and my daughter is not sufficient to keep me sober. 
the fear of losing a job or the need to earn money or the desire to, to make money is not sufficient to keep me sober. The threat of going to jail isn't sufficient to keep me sober. But those things might serve as incentive to get a guy like me to embrace the program of recovery that Alcoholics Anonymous offers. See, those things, what I, what those things can do is redirect my efforts. And our book says willpower is really not my problem. It's misdirected willpower. And you encourage me to, to try to align my will with God's will. It's the proper use of the will. And, and the way that I do that is just try to look for the directions that Alcoholics Anonymous gives me to try to embrace these principles, this design for living, and, and put it into application in my daily life and, and see how that works. And all I can tell you for sure is that since June 30th of 89, a drink has not been required. There had been stumbles of many other varieties along the way. And those sobriety dates are just a measure of time between my last drink and today, and my spiritual condition is sort of like the Dow Jones, you know. It, it, that graph goes up and down. I, I had the great crash of 80, you know, of, of, of 96 uh, in my sobriety. I had, went bankrupt in 97, or 99 rather. Uh, and I, think I used to say Connie and I went bankrupt. She said, I'd like you to fix that up, Steve. She said, you went bankrupt and took me with you. And, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell one other drinking story, and then I'm going to sober up some more and get to AA for a little while. Uh, I kind of ran away from home. I went to work in a family business, and uh, uh, I'd never been. I'd just been remarkably average at everything all my life. You know, that's, there's one thing to be average, but at least I was extraordinarily average. And... Uh, 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 and a lot of that was because I just didn't want, you know, I just kind of wanted to go along and get along, and, and I didn't want too much required of me, and I'd just been sort of a C student, and I'd been sort of an average athlete, and I'd never put myself out there. But in at school, I, I ended up not, you know, I, 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 my mother paid uh, tuition, but I didn't attend regularly at school. I certainly didn't graduate. I'd go to spring break and not come back and, and do those kind of things. And, you know, when you're on spring break in November, something's gone wrong. And, uh, 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 but when I was going to work in this family business and, and, uh, and which is a sales business. And they said, Steve, you'll be good at this. Like everybody really kept telling me how good I was going to be. And, you know, nothing scares me to death like you telling me I'm going to be good at something. You know, that potential thing we all talk about. I think even Bill got caught up in that potential thing, right? I mean, I mean, we said that, that alcoholics are, 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 you know, we, we, I just think it's a story we tell ourselves that we're above average if we just weren't drinking. You know, we just look like everybody else in the world in this room. We got, we got all types in here. But I know that I couldn't make these sales calls. I would head out and, and supposed to be making cold calls on these little furniture stores in, in rural Tennessee, Alabama, Kentucky. And I'd drive in, and I'd, I'd, I'd pull up, and I just couldn't go in. And then I'd go check in the little, you know, motel and, and, and start drinking and smoking dope. And I know I got to call in by the end of the day and, and uh, tell my brother, who's just four years older than me, but who has taken responsibility for this family business and who remarkably, who I resented so much for so long. And only in the last few years do I see what, what a remarkable thing he took on. And, uh, and how hard, how much harder I made that for him, actually. But I'd call in and, 
And, you know, I just have to make up some lie, but, you know, sooner or later you got to own the lie. When, you know, when you're, when you're in sales and two years later you hadn't sold anything, they begin to notice. And, uh, 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 you know, you can only say we're close for so long. And uh, uh, so I kind of ran away down to Florida. I went to work for some people down there and, and uh, being unfamiliar with my driving history, they, they gave me a company car. And uh, I was over at some friend's house watching uh, Monday Night Football and, we were drinking heavily and accessorizing that with a variety of other things. And, and I left at halftime of that game, and I got in my car, and I took off down this little residential street. And, and uh, I just couldn't navigate the turn. Uh, I used to say it was a horseshoe turn. I, I don't want to go back because it probably was just about a five-degree angle. But whatever it was, I couldn't navigate it. And I drove into a tree, and I hit that tree hard. And it caved in, the passenger side of the car broke out the front windshield, the back windshield. It, it was a mess. And I was shaken, but, but really not, not hurt. And, and I thought, man, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. Are the police gonna show up and I got another DUI? I mean, this, this whole job thing's gonna go south if I don't find a way to, to manage this situation. So I put the car in reverse and remarkably it, it backed away from the tree. And now I'm trying to drive back over to my buddy's house I just left so we could put a plan together. And uh, uh, y'all know a little something about putting a plan together, I know. And and uh, car's just driving almost sideways. The frame is bent so badly and glass is blowing in and, and people are, and I just, oh, God, just let me get over there. And, and finally I got there and I went in and, and, you know, Larry Curley and Mo put a plan together. And, plan was we drink a couple of cups of coffee. These guys would get in the car with me, and we would drive back over there and drive the car back into the tree. <laughs> Stay with me. It's a good plan. We'd just ease it into the tree. We'd then call the police who would come. These guys would serve as witnesses to corroborate my story that I had been run off the road by probably a drunken driver. We eased the car up there. I got out. I'm walking up to the corner house. There's a lot right, right there at the corner lot and, you know, no cell phones or anything then. And, and as I'm walking up to the house, the, the owner of the house came out and he's running down to where we are. And with great concern on his face and his eyes are big as saucers. He said, are you guys okay? Are you all right? And I said, yeah, man, we're all right. He said, well, it's a damnedest thing. You're the second guy to hit that tree tonight. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, man, you ought to cut that damn tree down, yeah. That is poorly placed and a hazard. Now, you know, that's the, that's the drunken behavior. You know, and, and, and I, and, and I also want to say that, that, repeat what I said earlier, that you're not going to be in a gathering of alcoholics and Al-Anons and friends and family of AAs that somebody in this room's life hasn't been inalterably changed by a drunken driver. And so I don't want you to think for a moment that I take lightly what happened there. I know, I know exactly what I was doing in retrospect. And I know that I could just as easily as taken life or, or, or done damage. And I'm just grateful that that didn't happen. So don't think I'm making light of that. I don't mean to. Uh, but that's the drunken behavior. But, you know, the thing that was puzzling me was why on a Tuesday afternoon with a wife that loved me and a kid that loved me and a, and a decent job and, and, a, and a house and a car and those types of things, why am I so unhappy? What's missing? What's missing in my life?
It wasn't, and now I never put the way I felt and the way I drank together. Never, I just, I didn't, I didn't think I drank over how I felt. But I couldn't figure out why I felt the way that I felt sober under circumstances that were seemingly okay. And then I couldn't understand why, uh, even drinking that I would, that I would begin to break, uh, uh, the trust with the people that loved me the most. And i got to tell you real quick, my wife is a, a, a I'm going to sober up here, and so is she. Because my wife's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and her sobriety date is 10 days after mine. I tell people, too, it's a real important 10 days to me. And Because, uh, uh, you know, if you got a little time on somebody, I say lord it over them. Anytime she and I have a little argument or disagreement, you know, I say, well, just wait 10 days, baby. It'll come clear to you. And, uh, uh, you know, I wish you could see what I can see from the spiritual mountaintop. And, uh, you know, I came in from, she just hates that naturally, and it's become kind of a running joke. But I came in a few years ago uh, uh, from a conference. I was easing into bed on a Sunday night, and, uh, uh, she, you know, welcomed me home, said, you have a good time and everything? I said, yeah. And she said, you didn't tell them that 10-day thing, did you? And I said, oh, yeah, baby, I got to. They love that. And uh, uh, she says, I just hate that. I said, I know, baby, but in 10 days you won't. And uh, <laughs> Now, I, I wouldn't tell you that if I wasn't going to tell you this. I just talked to her just before I came down tonight. And she's a great member of Alcoholics Anonymous. We were married seven years uh, uh, before sobering up, and we're and we're coming up on our 28th wedding anniversary. And uh, 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 we both know that uh, that our marriage, uh, that alcoholics, that that if we weren't sober, and in fact if we weren't active members of AA, I don't believe that we would be together. I don't know what our lives would look like, but I don't think we'd be together. And, we're, and, and I will also tell you that, uh, that there was a long period of readjustment in our sobriety, a long period, not trying to decide whether we loved each other, but trying to decide whether we liked each other, trying to decide whether we were now compatible with these two new sober people because we met in a bar over a pile of cocaine. We got married in Mexico. We were on, just went on a trip down to Mexico, drank something out of a coconut, got on a boat, went out in international waters, and were married by an Austrian captain who read the ceremony in Spanish. <laughs> there were people who were skeptical that union would take. Uh, but here we are. Anyway, I better hurry up and get back to that treatment center. You know, I'm about three weeks in. I, I'm, I'm starting to go out to meetings of AA, and they're bringing meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in. And to be fair, of a variety of 12-step programs, and I'm very grateful for all of them. They all welcomed us wherever the bus let us out. And we didn't know, I didn't know what I was. I, I, I identified myself as, as two or three things at least, and that's okay. And people, you know what, people in AA meetings didn't correct me because they knew I didn't know what I was yet. What they knew is that if I got a chance to stay around a little bit, I might figure that out. And then people would talk to me one-on-one over time and help me understand what Alcoholics Anonymous was. You helped me understand about singleness of purpose. Uh, you helped me understand about that identification, one alcoholic with another. But the good thing is that you didn't expect me to get off the bus understanding the rules. And I've got to remember that today, that I can't expect somebody to always show up at AA already knowing what we expect of people in AA. 
but I've also then got a shared responsibility to uh, to reach out to that person and help them like you helped me understand what AA is about so people can then make informed choices about how to conduct themselves and where maybe they're best suited to be. Uh, I decided to, that I needed to stop drinking while I was in that treatment facility. It was probably two or three months later that I decided I wanted to stop drinking, and they were different decisions for me. But, uh, but now I pop out of there, and I'm going in Nashville to the 202 Club. Uh, I wandered in there, uh, and I walked upstairs. If any of you have been there, uh, uh, particularly back, there, back then, there were usually about three or four meetings going on at any given time at different places in the building. And I wandered upstairs and took a hard left into the little square room, and there were about 12 people in there that changed my life because they were having a big book study. I didn't know there was such a thing as a big book study. I didn't know about studying the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, downstairs at the half measures table, they called these guys big book thumpers. And they didn't mean it. It wasn't a term of endearment when they said But what I'll tell you is that, is that was not my experience. Those people didn't beat me with that book. What they had was a respect for the integrity of the message that the book of Alcoholics Anonymous contains. And what they did was help me go through that book as they went through it, seeing, number first, if I could identify and find myself as an alcoholic, and second, can I find the directions toward a solution, toward this common solution that would work. And, and I believe that that set the foundation for my recovery. I think if I'd wandered first into an open discussion meeting, and I love open discussion meetings. In fact, I'm going to tell you my favorite thing about an open discussion meeting is I can't wait to hear what I have to say in one. <laughs> That's also the biggest flaw in an open discussion meeting for me. But if I'm in a literature meeting, what's going to happen? No matter how nutty I might get, no matter how off track what I share may be, how caught up I am in a given day and my stuff, and that's okay. But the next person is going to be reading something out of the book or going to be sharing something that's part of the solution. You're not going to, the, the meeting is not going to be captive, uh, to where I take it all. I'm not going to take it hostage like can happen sometimes. And, you know, my, my sponsor Frank used to tell me, he said, Steve, if you want some misinformation about Alcoholics Anonymous, just attend a few of our meetings. And, uh, uh, and, and I get that. And he says, you're going to want to go to this, to this book study. He says, so when you go to an open discussion meeting, you'll know whether what you're hearing is Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, not to hit somebody with it, not to correct them, not to finger whack, but just so you know. He says, because if I'm counting on you or if you are counting on me to be the sole source of information on recovery, then we're each selling each other short. So he says, go, go to the source, go to the literature. It says it in, in the forward to our fourth edition that it protects the integrity of the message. So I feel lucky. That, that's worked well for me, and I'm glad that that happened. Uh, uh, I got this guy, Frank, to be my sponsor out of that meeting at the time, and, and uh, uh, Frank was kind of the uh, epitome of the kind of the cantankerous uh, old-timer. And Frank had just been sober about 11 years, but he didn't get sober till he was 56. And, uh, uh, and he was about 6'5 and about 300 pounds. And, and, you know, I needed, I needed kind of a, a authority figure. Not somebody, I didn't need a cool daddy to run, to me, you know, run the traps with me. I, I needed kind of a father figure. And, uh, and Frank served that. And he spent most of the first day together telling me what he wasn't going to do. 
when I asked him to be my sponsor. And he says, all right, I'll do it. He says, but, he says, I ain't going to be a career counselor. I ain't a taxi cab. I ain't going to loan you any money. He says, I'm, and I'm not a uh, relationship counselor. I thought, Frank, this is going to be a treat, isn't it? Uh, 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 I'm excited about this. I can tell you are. And, uh, uh, but I know what he meant today. See, what he didn't mean, he didn't mean that we weren't going to explore all those areas of my life. What he meant was that he wasn't going to tell me what to do, that he was going to help me navigate through each area of my life based on the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I'm stumbling across something, he's not going to tell me to stay or go, take the job, don't take it, move, don't move, leave, you know, none of that. He says, but let's take a look. Let's see what this program of recovery is looking like. And then your life, your, that, that will infiltrate your life in all areas of your life. Uh, at a year sober, I moved to Richmond, Virginia, and I was nervous about that because uh, uh, I was I was really thrilled to be sober. And I got over there, and about my second or third meeting there, I got a, a, a sponsor in Richmond, a guy named Joe S. Now Joe has just uh, 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 he really he really served me well. I've had three sponsors now. I got a, a new sponsor in, in November of this past year, uh, but. For the eight years I was there in Richmond, Joe was my sponsor. And if, if Frank introduced me to the literature of AA, Joe really introduced me to the practices, principles, and all your affairs and to the service aspect of AA. He had been a state delegate. Uh, uh, he was active in service. He put me into the home group. He, he encouraged me toward taking commitments. He got me involved, and I think that served my sobriety well. And it helped me serve AA in a way that AA has served me. But Joe and I looked through a few things, and I want to share a, a few perspectives uh, uh, that he shared with me or that he helped frame for me during those years together. And, and then I'll close with, a, with a, another thing I think our book asked me to do while I'm up here. But uh, Joe and I were going through, you know, when I, when I got sober there in Nashville, and, and I've probably been going to meetings about six months before I realized that I'm sitting in the meeting one day before it started, and there's all this chatter going on. You guys sit in your group, and there's all this chatter sometimes. This chatter was going on. I thought, man, these people are talking to each other between meetings. I hadn't, believe it or not, I had no idea till then that people were actually having relationships between. The, I thought, hey, we just come in and huddle up and then run home, you know, <laughs> and we'll come back tomorrow and talk about how it went. And uh, uh, but I didn't know it. And then people began. That, then I began to hear uh, what I'm sure was going on all the time. They'd say something like, "Hey, we're all going to go to Shoney's uh, 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 after the meeting. Who wants to go?" And man, I desperately wanted to go, but I was afraid to go. The same guy that couldn't get out of the car and go make that sales call couldn't go to Shoney's. And I'll tell you why. See, I didn't just need them to say, hey, we're all going to Shoney's. What I needed was three or four guys to come over and go, Steve, we've all been talking, man. We really want you to go to Shoney's with us. <laughs> and we're just arguing over who gets to sit next to you. And uh, 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 I need that because my fear was that, that I'll get in my car and I'll go to Shoney's. And I'll walk up and there'll be six people sitting at a table for six. And I don't know whether to pull the seventh chair. I don't know whether you really mean it. I don't know whether this is going to be an inconvenience. I don't know what to do. I don't know if you really meant me. If you're new, let me tell you, we really mean you. We really want you to come. We really mean it. Don't be afraid. Welcome. Be a part of what's going on here. This is not lip service. 
And people, people have never turned me away when I've been willing to take a risk of the invitation. But that's the way I felt. And I get over there to Richmond. I start talking to Joe about a few things. We look in how it works, and that's something that always bothered me in how it works. It says some of us tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil till we let go, absolutely. I thought, Joe, you know, I was 35 years old when I got to AA. I said, that seems to imply that everything I did before I got to AA was a bad idea, that I, you know, that, that, that I just didn't have any good ideas before I got here. I said, truth is, Joe, I showed up at AA with some damn good ideas. <laughs> And he said, Steve, I'm sure you did, buddy. He said, I've not heard any of them yet. But uh, 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 he said, but that's not what it means. And I wouldn't presume to know what it means, but I'll share the point of view that, that I've adopted that he shared with me. He says, it doesn't mean that you don't have any good ideas. It does mean that you are not very good at distinguishing the good ideas from the bad ideas. It does mean that if you hold on to the old ideas, that you are limited to those ideas. That if you are willing, it doesn't say to discard those ideas. It doesn't say that they are without value. It doesn't say that you might not embrace them later. But if you are holding on, you can't embrace any new ideas that might serve you better and might serve others better. So it's not saying cast them away. It's just saying put them down. So you go through this process. The good ones will find their way back. And, and, and that has really helped me. We went, you know, I called Joe. I left a meeting one night. I had talked at great length, almost as long as I've talked here tonight, and it wasn't a speaker meeting. And uh, 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 I called Joe after I got home. He had been at the meeting, and I said, uh, I said, Joe, did I sound self-righteous in that meeting tonight? He said, oh, Steve, you're still asking all the wrong questions. He said, see, because the question isn't did you sound self-righteous. The question is were you self-righteous? He said, because the truth is, you don't care if you were self-righteous or not. You're afraid they caught you. You're afraid they think you're self-righteous. He said, the fact of the matter is, if you were self-righteous, try not to do it again. If you weren't, don't worry about it. See, what I've discovered since I've been here is that I'm not who you think I am. And I'm not who I think I am. And I'm sure as hell not who I think you think I am. <laughs> now, that's really good news to me today, see, because I have spent a lifetime trying to figure all of that out. And the fact is, I only have a limited view of me from here. And you only have a limited view. None of us have the whole story. I was sitting in a meeting not long ago, and it was on the four-step, and a guy, a newer guy, and he, and, and he was saying with all earnestness, he says, I don't know. Actually, it had moved on to the fifth step, and, and, he, and he was talking about sharing this with, with God and, and another human being. He says, he says, I frankly don't know why that's necessary. He says, he says we know ourselves, uh, we know more about our, or we know ourselves better than anyone. And I thought about it, and I said, you know, I'm not sure that's true about me. I have more information about me than anyone, but I misinterpret the information. I'm not sure I know me better than anyone. I just know more about me. AA has helped me learn more about me, and actually it has helped me learn more about who I'm not. You have helped me begin to shed those things. I think that's what these steps do is they begin to peel away those things that I am not so the more authentic me can begin to show up. Uh, we got up around step six and seven, and, I, and, and Joe said, Steve, this is, by the way, not where you're going to get perfect. He says, it's where you're going to come to grips with your imperfection. It's where you're going to find enough humility to be who you are. 
See, one of the things I didn't realize until I'd been in AA for a good while is I have spent an awful lot of time getting ready to have a good day. You know, I'm getting, I'm preparing just as soon as this happens, that as soon as my list, and I don't even know I'm carrying the list. See, I don't realize the book says in there that we all know the difference in a simple request and a demand, but I would tell you that that request turns into a demand when I'm not looking. I don't realize that I, that all of a sudden now I've got this stuff that's gotta happen. I've gotta have either this, this amount of money or she's gotta treat me right or it's, you know, whatever. Things have to be a certain way. Well, what you have told me here is the fact is what's available to me on any given day. What we really mean by day at a time is today is the day. Today is the day that I want to be okay right now in this set of circumstances as I am and as you are. Now, there's lots of stuff I hope changes over time, lots of stuff I still want to do, but I'm not willing to wait till it happens to be okay. And you have taught me that when I'm willing to be surrendered enough, I was sitting in a meeting there early on, and, and they were telling a guy who was going around the room, and these folks kept saying, keep coming back, it gets better. Every time they'd finish their little pitch, they'd say, keep coming back, it gets better. And I was just about three or four months sober. This old guy named Herb been there, and he says, I'll tell you when it gets better. He said, it gets better when it's okay the way that it is. And that's so, so which is right now, by the way. I've got to find a way to be okay right now while I try to become the man God would have me be. Um, Back to those old ideas for a second. Joe said the first idea I need to let go of is the idea that I think I know what just happened. And man, that has been true in Alcoholics Anonymous for me. See, I don't know what just happened. I just know how it feels. I don't know what it was good or bad, right or wrong, should have or shouldn't have. Because what I can tell you is that most of the things that have helped me the most in my life, that have pointed my life in a direction that have benefited me the most, are things that I would not have had the courage or the wisdom to volunteer for. When I went bankrupt in 1999, I wouldn't have volunteered for that. I tell you what, as a result of that bankruptcy, my marriage, you know, kind of, when, when money's tight in a home, you know, the pressure will ratchet up a little bit. And we went through about two years of that, and we got to pick at each other a little bit, and we got in a fight, and we just said things you can't pretend you didn't say, you know. And finally we had to sit in a room one day and decide whether we were going to blame each other or whether we were going to be partners. Whether we, we can do this if we do it together. And it totally changed my marriage, which was already a good one. But it put me all in, and I think it put her all in. Now, if you'd have come to me and said, Steve, here's the deal. There's going to be about two or three years. You're going to be on the phone every night with the creditors. They're going to come by, by the way, with a flatbed truck and pick up your two automobiles while the neighbors watch. They're going to hammer and they're going to put a foreclosure sign in the front yard of your home and, and you're going to lose that. And uh, uh, But after a couple of years of that, you and Connie, man, you're going to be tight. Uh, uh, I say, Get, let's work something else out, you know. Connie and I will work that out. So was I going bankrupt or was I undergoing relationship counseling? Looked like one thing, but the results were another. And so today I just have to kind of remember some of those things. I'm going to take the next couple of minutes. What have I, what have I got here, Jim? Okay. I'm going to take the next five minutes. And the other thing I'm supposed to do is tell you about this relationship with God, how I established it. 
So real quickly, I'll tell you that when I was first sober and we'd get up and hold hands and say the Lord's Prayer, I wouldn't do it. I'd step away from the crowd and, and I, I don't think I was atheist or agnostic. I was just kind of apathetic, but I didn't know what I believed. And a guy came up to me one night. He said, Steve, what's that all about, buddy? Why, why are you doing that? And I said, well, I, uh, I don't want to be a hypocrite. And man, this guy just laughed, you know, that AA lay. Not, not, you know, they, we say we don't laugh at you, but I think sometimes they were. And, uh, 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 and he said, uh, he said, Steve, hypocrisy is way down your list of problems, pal. And he said, you might ought to address them in the order in which they will kill your ass. He said, but I got some good news for you. And I said, well, I'm ready for some good news. What is it? He said, the good news is there's room for another hypocrite in Alcoholics Anonymous. Man, that's great news for me. That's better news for me today than it was then. You know, because I don't, I don't mean to be, you know. We are a program that espouses perfect ideals. So, so by very nature, there are times that I'm going to look like a hypocrite, sound like a hypocrite, and sometimes I'm going to be a hypocrite. Because if you, if you, if this was a reality show, if my sobriety was a reality show and you got the camera on me 24-7, there's going to be some, some ugly moments. I wish that weren't true, but I, you know, I show up every now and then. And uh, not nearly as often. It's a guest appearance rather than a starring role these days. Uh, but I still, for quite a while, couldn't quite grab this relationship with a higher power. I went on and did the things you encouraged me to do. I was thrilled to be sober. I was enjoying my sobriety, but, but I just didn't, something was just kind of missing. And finally, and this is the shorter version since we're running out of time, I, I adopted what I found in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and We Agnostics. It says no one can fully define or comprehend that power which is God. So I quit trying to define or comprehend it. It says deep within every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So I decided that's where God's hanging out, deep within me and deep within you. That became the connection point to the human race for me. That thing that used to make me feel distanced from now it's became a connection but then it says look out steve it says what might obstruct this newfound relationship is pop worship of other things and calamity and pop i believe is a reemergence of self and pride and ego worship of other things or any of those things which i raise above my relationship with that power with you my sobriety aa and calamity can be uh, as as real as bankruptcy the floods we just had death Disease, or I can get home, you know, Sunday and the cable can be out at my house. Because a calamity is anything that I have decided can't be happening to me. And in AA, the good news is, is that I'm more and more willing for more and more things to happen to me. This has not been a life of, un, uh, of having my demands met. It's a life of, lim uh, of lessening my demands. I don't need as much as I need it. Uh, I want to close by giving the short version of what that whole relationship with that higher power is. Some of you guys may know uh, 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 my old friend uh, uh, Mo H. from Nashville. And Mo passed away in 2003. It's December of 2003. And he was a great influence on me and a great AA member, as any of you who know him know. And Mo always recited a verse to a poem uh, when he closed his talks. And when he got cancer, and, and when we knew his time was short, my friend Jerry and I went to breakfast with him in October of 2003, and uh, uh, just about six weeks before he passed. 
And uh, when Jerry went to Carr, I asked Mo, I said, Mo, would you mind if when I get a chance to share my talk, if I end with that poem? Because it will, it will help me honor and remember you. And in the truest sense of Alcoholics Anonymous, it will help me pass on what you have given to me and so many others. And he said, oh, Steve, he said, if you think it will help another drunk, because that's really what he cared about. And see, I know it helps another drunk because it helps me every time. And it was a short little poem that said, I sought my God, my God I could not see. And I sought my soul, my soul eluded me. But I sought my fellow man and found all three. And Alcoholics Anonymous, that's what you've allowed me to do. It's by you sharing your life with me and allowing me to share your, my life with you. You've helped me find a life that has purpose. You've given me direction. You've helped me figure out who I am. I can never be grateful enough for what AA has done, but I hope I never quit trying. Thank you so much.